Adriel, welcome back to the show. It's always exciting to do round two interviews. What's going on? Yeah, man, it, uh, it's very good to be here. What'd you tell me? I asked you earlier what's going on. You're like, everything and nothing all at once. Pretty much. Same, right back at you. I was like, you asked me for a list of 100 updates, could come up with 100 things to tell you. You asked me for one and I'll distill it down for you. So just one of those people doing all, a lot of things all the time. Yeah, my, uh, I have a three-month-old daughter and she is normally a very good sleeper. Last night, I'd, I'd, I'd give her a, a B minus. So basically, the podcast could turn into anything, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen. Like, we'll blame her regardless. I'll put at the outset the catalyst for you reaching out for this to come back on the agenda for all of us is a new book. So we do have a focus of the conversation, not just been a while, let's catch up. We do have a thing in specific coming out. Tell me the high-level elevator pitch of the book so at least we start the conversation out with what we came here to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's a good, good start. So the book's called Attainable Sustainability, Building Your Corporate Climate Strategy. Basically book targeted at executives in the like uh, small and mid-cap business who are trying to figure out climate regulation, trying to figure out what companies are asking from them when they're talking about climate, trying to figure out how to comply with all this stuff, do it really well, do it strategically, make it a profitable venture and manage like some cost situation. And it's also focused on people who want to get into the climate space. Um, thousands of students and, and people working and entrepreneurs and people working in businesses. We do who knows what, but also want to take some sort of impact against climate change. This book is basically their guide to figure out what can you actually do? What do the best companies do? How do you get started? How do you make it profitable, useful, beneficial in the company um, from zero to one? That makes sense. So not necessarily what to do like in terms of your own personal, let's call them like consumption habits, but in terms of like, this is the path to working on this problem through the business world. Yeah. I mean, as we speak, exactly. So it's not about your personal car, but brain. Yeah. You let me either take the train instead of drive, do all those things, but that's, that's another book. If you want that, there's a great book called How Bad Are Bananas? Hard to do that uh, individuals. This was like, actually, as we record this today, it's Friday, September 15th. The last two days, um, it's been really popular. I don't know if you saw the Apple um, sustainability segment that they had from their big annual conference. Um, the, the CEO and a bunch of executives came together and they had the actress, Octavia Spencer, like act of Mother Nature. And Apple talked about all their sustainability initiatives and how their stores are carbon neutral and how they use renewable energy and how uh, they're reducing water use in every office and every product, and how they're doing all of these things across the supply chain. Apple has a team of, I don't know, 50 or 100 people working on their sustainability team, from supply chain to material sciences to marketing to their stores, figuring all that stuff out. Smaller businesses, businesses that have a market cap of 100 million to 10 billion, have to do the same kind of stuff because investors want to see it, their customers want to see it, employees want to see it, regulators want to see it, but they don't have nearly as many resources. So this book's kind of a guide to how do those companies do as well as Apple is doing, and they're getting an insane amount of press for their current sustainability work. Um, how do you do that with many fewer resources? Yeah, I don't want to come across as on the attack. This is a lot of curiosity type questions. And, and a lot of, um, and I'm not going to come in here saying I have strong opinions or strong knowledge. There's a lot of things they don't know. And this isn't something I study closely, right? So um, it kind of positions me in a good position to be a host on this, right? Or to be a interviewer rather than the, I'm very unprepared to sit in your shoes on this interview. I think, I, well, there's no like specific place to start with it. I think in general, one framing question, just your definition of sustainability, right? The book talks a lot about carbon, but it's not just about carbon, right? You talked about water and the and energy, which is related to carbon, obviously, and then also the materials involved in producing a physical product and things like that. So your view on sustainability, is it just about less resource consumption across the border? Like, how do you define the, the sustainability strategy? It's not just about carbon, but it's mostly yeah. about carbon. That's like a very confusing so, question to me. Now, it's a big question. I'll think two things. Um, I say often that there's no such thing as sustainable but sustainability is very clear. It's just the path and progress. Like there is no end point to this. It's not like you do these seven things and snap your fingers, you are now sustainable and you get a special badge for that. So like this, there's always going to be progress to be made. So that progress is really, really important. So sustainability is about confident and prove it in a bunch of different areas. 
your second part of that question is, is carbon the main thing, the only thing? Uh, should we talk about exclusively carbon or not carbon? A lot of this is measured, you talk about uh, corporate carbon emissions, which is basically all of the things you do at the business, all your office space, your business travel, products you make and sell, uh, the energy use you have, the t-shirts you buy new employees. All of that has some sort of impact on the environment. And impact can be measured in a lot of different ways. If you're a restaurant and you sell food, you might want to measure the uh, methane produced from the cows on the farms before they're butchered. If, you, uh, if you're any sort of business and you travel, uh, or be a better example, you have a refrigerator in your office uh, that loses what's called F-gases, which is like a refrigerant. You have all of these different things. They're just complicated and no one knows what all the details are. You talk about methane, about nitrogen, about F-gases. How do you compare them all? So like the, uh, the corporate carbon accounting um, uh, methodology, like how do you measure all this stuff, basically came up with something called CO2E, carbon dioxide equivalents, which is to say all the stuff that you do at a business, all the methane you release, uh, the water that comes out of your spigots, the energy you use measured in kilowatt hours, the t-shirts you buy, the all, all that stuff comes together to do what's called create um, your carbon emissions and carbon dioxide equivalents. So when you see businesses say my carbon footprint is 10,000 metric tons, that is 10,000 metric tons of CO2E, carbon dioxide equivalents, which is a combination of all these different things. So carbon is not the only issue that we should be talking about. It is one of many issues. Some things are difficult to measure in terms of carbon, um, such as uh, waste can be tricky or like, like electric recycling can be tricky to measure in terms of carbon. But many things can be transposed into a measurement of carbon. That just helps us all speak the same language. If you're a financial accountant, you always want to talk in U.S. dollars, no matter where you're trading globally. If you are a carbon accountant or you work in sustainability, make life a lot easier to speak in terms of CO2E. So anybody working on this from a corporate perspective should understand CO2E is just a kind of some addition, some notifications, some subtraction, bringing all the different emissions into carbon units. So the another score is ESG. And what's the objectivity of that score being like a, just a number? Cause it's a composite of the three components and yeah. What's the objectivity versus subjectivity of ESG? Yeah. So ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. It's basically the idea that all these things need to come together to build a better for the planet business. ESG was a term that the United Nations kind of coined in 2004. And said, like, if we kind of come up with this framework, then we'll be able to talk to companies in a language everybody understands. Because do good for the planet is kind of confusing. Do good for your community can like that can be interpreted in lots of ways. ESG is just a catch. There's not often an ESG score in the same way that you get a carbon footprint score. Carbon footprint's a number. You guys have your business, you fly, you have offset, you buy swag. I can tell you the number of emissions that you guys generate. If you want to be carbon neutral, I can tell you the number of offsets you want to buy. I can tell you the price per ton you should pay. The E side of it, especially when it comes to carbon accounting, is measured. The rest of it is very difficult to measure because it means so many different things to many different businesses. But they're really, really important to investors and regulators, especially investors. So you have lots of these huge data groups, companies like Morningstar and BlackRock, who want to understand how you're performing against certain ESG metrics. And while the score is not super clear, you don't get a B plus or a C minus on an ESG score. Um, you do want to be working on all these things. You report to different frameworks. There's things called CVP, things called Picodatus. There's like what investors are using to try to turn ESG into a score. But I was thinking about ESG as a score. ESG is more of a, a framework, a topic of conversation, a some guiding principles that investors and corporate executives care about. One part of that is the E, the environmental side, and one part of that is carbon accounting and measuring your carbon emissions. That makes sense. Yeah, I think the, because I agree with you that the E part makes sense. It's kind of like, how many resources do you use? And if we say car, there's a way to turn everything into carbon or the equivalent of carbon, then if that's important to you for whatever reason, in terms of like making that number go up, go down, investing in companies with a certain ratio, all sorts of things you can do. That one makes a lot of sense to be like a, an objective measure. Whereas the rest are definitely a lot more like certainly subjective. A lot of it more, right? Like social, you have some objective sides to it. Like what's your what's your ratio of diverse employees? What's your gender balance at your executive level? That's kind of social. That's pretty easy to measure. 
But other things like what impact do you have on your community? You know, like dollars donated? Is that volunteer hours? Is that you fund a food bank? Like that kind of trigger you to measure. Governance, also there's something that you can measure well. Like do you have a team on your board of directors that oversees X, Y, or Z? But some of it is also very complicated to measure. Like how many other compensation structure? Why does the CEO make 500x what the lowest paid employee does? It might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. Some businesses should do that. Some businesses shouldn't do that. And so it's a little bit more complicated. And there's a lot of pushback on the AFC lately um, for some political reasons that are mostly not that. And for some good reasons, which is like, it's a limiting framework. I think the, I saw something from the CEO of Coca-Cola when he was asked on a quarterly call, like, are you backing away from the investments? Because the pension fund of Texas firefighters, that they don't want to invest in the things anymore. And the Coca-Cola CEO basically responded saying, I don't totally care what you call it. It is good for our customers to use less sugar in our products. It's good for our company if we have more women at higher levels of the business. It's good for our company if we have like, take less water out of aquifers and reservoirs so that those communities are better. We're just going to do this stuff that's good for the business and call it a G. Don't call like, call it whatever you want. Let me know. What, what you want me to put on my report, we're going to continue doing all this stuff because it's good for our business to do so. And that's more important on subtext of this conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that when you, but where you run into those challenges politically are when you make the whole, like the whole bundle important and then you inc- include stuff in the bundle that's controversial. But when you unbundle it until in terms of like, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. It's just when you force people, when you, you put the bundle includes a lot of things, but when you list them out, you can definitely make it sound like yeah. one thing or the other. Or, or you know, they'll take a stance on good or bad. Like a yeah. law, a bill just got introduced in California like two days ago. It basically says by 20, like in the day, 2025 or 2026, companies that do over a billion dollars that have business in California, not that are based in California, but that do business in California, are going to be to report on their carbon emissions. They're not saying your carbon emissions need to be below X number or and their volume Y number you get fined. They're just saying this matters to our investment community. This matters to us as regulators. We want to know your number and investors can decide for themselves. Do you want to buy high carbon businesses? Do you want to sell off your high carbon business? Like make that incentive for yourself. We're just talking about transparency. So that's why a lot of this climate regulation stuff is actually happening under the auspices of the SEC. The Security and Exchange Commission, which is the, the uh, part of the government that regulates publicly traded companies. It's not happening in the, like the Consumer Protection Agency and it's not happening from the EPA, the Environment Protection Agency. Happening from the SEC. All the SEC is saying is not put good labels and bad labels. Just that we're going to put a number on things and investors can decide for themselves if they care about the number, they don't care about the number, how much they want to value that number. Like this is purely about transparency and investors can decide for themselves what to do with that number. I think that's the important side. And if there's investors who say, I don't care, I don't look at that number. All I look at is the bottom line growth potential. Great. Awesome. Like full freedom to go do that. And if there's investors who say, nope, like we don't invest in businesses that have a cell emissions intensity, which is like your total carbon emissions divided by a certain numerator or denominator. Maybe it's revenue, maybe it's number of stores, maybe it's number of employees that's your emission density. Maybe there's some investors say, hey, we have an emission intensity limit. Um, a hundred metric tons per dollar of revenue. Cool, right? Like you can do that too. When, it, when it, it's just about transparency. Yeah, I think that it's definitely important to think through second order consequences of that. Um, because you know a lot of things that start out seemingly harmless can go in all sorts of directions. So it's just worth considering, just in terms of like increased information requirements on things, because there's just all sorts of there's ways to to get sneaky. Like I think in terms of like fully digitizing currency as well kind of a similar one that like you can think for a day of like all the benefits but i don't i don't necessarily have the ones that come to mind i'm just like seems like another important piece of information to give you know just information and transparency also is a mechanism of control in some respects and so it's important to like think is it necessary for this to be required to share this information for sure there's i i'll play the devil's advocate to my own self there like there could be negative things that come from this it's super easy to play this game and measure what you want to measure. So um, you, you set what's called your operational boundary when you do carbon accounting. You say, hey, in my business, we are going to measure this. And this something like kind of part of our business, but we're going to ignore it this year. Like 
it's just a little bit separate. We don't want to take ownership over it. Like your suppliers, for example, like maybe you, you do want to include the emissions that from your like, I don't know, uh, whatever material this is, your aluminum, uh, provided that makes your mugs, or maybe you're like, yeah, that's not really us. Companies that decide to include their suppliers are going to have a much higher carbon footprint than companies that decide to ignore their suppliers. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the companies that are ignoring the suppliers seem like they have businesses, which is not true at all. They just decided to make their operational boundary different. It's super easy to mess with the accounting of this and say, this is good, this is bad, this is whatever. I think the point being, or the, the effort, the, the philosophy behind this effort of regulators, this stuff existed in Europe for probably a decade. It's been talked about in the SEC for about two years, and maybe California for about a year. The point that they're making is that climate is going to be a really important input to decision-making for consumers and for investors over the course of the next 50 years. There will be really a lot of buying decisions and, and, and investment decisions that bring climate into effect. So let's begin bringing some transparency to that. And counting was a very flawed uh, system, but it had like 500 years of being figured out as a method yeah. like Venetian merchants who were just trying to like keep track of how many ships came in and out and what they brought and sold or whatever. And it took hundreds of years and many, many mess ups to get to modern financial accounting. It could take a similarly long time, maybe half the amount of time to get to a state of like status quo and, and normalcy in corporate carbon accounting. And there's going to be lots of mess ups and lots of rule of learning and lots of like under the table, you know, gray hat accountants helping you. And there's going to be so many people who are like, look, like the point of that, like, look, this is the problem. Like, this is the issue. See, this is why we shouldn't be doing this. And I will go to those people and say, Enron happened 20 years ago. And nobody says accounting is a bad thing. We just say, we need to work on our accounting standards. Let's improve them. I see the same thing for corporate carbon accounting. There's going to be lots of mess ups. There's going to be lots of faulty days. There's going to be lots of liars. There's going to be lots of fraud. There's going to be lots of honest brokers who get the short end of the stick for whatever reason. And yet... It's important as we kind of move into a new green economy, uh, which is one of the largest financial opportunities and risks that it's gotten wrong for the next century. I think that's that's a really good framing. It's there's a lot of things, you know, we got to start and zoom out and be like, what can we all agree on here? Right. It's like if you're using excess resources in a completely unnecessary way, that's super unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're dumping waste in a river, well, that's a bad example, but that's regulated. If you are Business travel is a good example, right? So like business travel is something you measure the emissions of um, when you're doing your corporate carbon accounting. You say, how much do I travel? What are the emissions of that trap? If you are a business, let's say you're a consulting business, and you own a private jet, which is not uncommon in, in professional services, gets your executives around faster, and you own a private jet, you have really high business travel emissions, whereas your competitor does not own a private jet, and their rule is that you can only travel if you're a vice president or above. And so their travel emission, their carbon footprint is one test that of their competitor. The competitor for the jet is more than welcome to have their jet. Like, go for it. If you think that's the best way to run your business, you'd have your jet. But everyone should be aware that if they go with your business, the emissions are going to be 10x higher than if they go with a competitor's bid. So now they're making the decision based on the quality of your service and say, oh, I'm going to choose the consultants with the jet no matter what, because they're a better consultant. I don't care about emissions, but many other dudes are going to say, you know what? Like the consultant without the jet is an equally good consultant. And I want a consultant who is more sustainable and has fewer emissions. So I'm going to choose the consultant without the jet. My point of all that is to say businesses should do whatever decision they think is right for their business. And for many, that decision will be to reduce emissions wherever possible. So it doesn't impact the business. You should have never traveled. You got to travel to see clients. And it's good for the business and it has emissions. What are you going to do about it? But you should be more thoughtful about your travel. And I, as a potential customer or the potential investor, should know how you think about all this. It makes sense. I'm with you on your previous points of this is accounting had a 500 year arc. And this is, I'm going to, I don't know how many orders of magnitude more complicated, but probably several orders of magnitude more complicated to keep track of because, again, of like the, Again, the supplier issue is just one. It's like, well, if the plane that you're on, like what it takes to make that you can go, there's there's no clear place to like 
I mean, I guess there is a point of stopping, maybe. But if you like take every potential measurement to the conclusion, it's super complicated. It's a lot. Yeah. Because then again, well, you can analyze the the work being done, right? It's like, what if the work being done that they're traveling to do is building renewable energy or some other thing that, or, you know, some policy advocacy that is going to offset 10 decades that like they're traveling to conduct a deal to build the biggest rainforest ever built. It's just the, the externalities are very, very, very difficult to keep track of. So I'm definitely with you that like, there's a lot of fundamentals that I think are easy to agree to. It's just how enthusiastically we should adopt extreme things quickly that I'm just really slow on for now, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's entirely fair. Like it's, it's, it's an issue. It's really difficult yeah. compared to businesses against each other in carbon emissions because there's so many things you don't understand, so many things you don't know, so many things that you can measure the same thing in two different ways. So if, I, if, you're, if you and I are competitors and we're equal in every single way and we're doing our carbon footprint analysis and you tell an external carbon accounting company that you spent a million dollars on business travel last year and I am able to get better data and I tell that carbon accounting company, ignore the money I've spent, it doesn't matter. I flew exactly 100,000 miles last year. We're going to get two very different numbers like mm-hmm. because the, the my 100,000 miles is a very specific number. Your million dollars is kind of difficult to understand. You spend a million dollars on the jets or on you know, flying account. And so all of these are issues, 100%. But I think the thing that's a takeaway, I suppose, is that while all these issues are getting figured out, companies still need to figure them out as we get like, they need to look at them and do them. And they could push back and they should participate in the process. And the SEC, uh, in April of 2022, kind of released their, so about a year and a half ago, released this climate disclosure bill for comment. And it was open for comment for about six months. That's kind of standard where the SEC wants to release something. They open up a comment period. And what's interesting is that for this climate bill, there were like 15,000 companies that submitted comments. A week later, a week after this climate disclosure bill, um, a, uh, a bill that came out about cybersecurity from the SEC, also a very important topic for investors. Uh, the SEC said, hey, we're thinking about the cybersecurity bill. Six month open comment period. They had fewer than a thousand comments received on the cybersecurity bill over the course of their six month open comment period. The comment bill was like 15x more controversial, beneficial, thoughtful, needed work, whatever. But being you as a company, yes, if you're large enough, you have the resources, like have a voice, discuss it, talk about the problems, make it better, show how you're doing it, figure it out, but also realize that if you're a business that has aspirations to go public, that wants to serve the Fortune 500 because all of them are making their customers report on the data that wants to get private equity money um, because most many private equity firms have European money that come into the firm and that European money demands that any investment report on its carbon emissions. Like you're going to have to figure this stuff out. You're going to have to do it. And yeah, let's all make it better and push back and say, hey, like go a little slower. Let's figure out what we can do. What are the pros or the cons? All that should be on the table and your, your company, your listeners' companies should be as vocal and passionate and, and thought provoking as they want to be as the 15,000 comments, uh, to the SEC were, um, most of which were overwhelmingly positive, by the way. I think it was like 84% positive, 16%, um, like, and in any way critical. You should be open about it, but you also need to be very aware that this is going to be super critical for your business to figure out. What's motivated you to take on all of this? The book? The career and sustainability. Planet Earth. Excellent. Can you show? Not like our planet Earth. Uh, there's a, it was like a, a Netflix documentary series called Planet Earth. Uh, with date Sir David Attenborough narrated, narrated it. Okay. it was a beautiful piece of content ever. And I remember watching it like 12, 15 years ago being like, oh my God, like this is just a, an, an, such an incredible thing to work on. And it ends with just like, how do we get better? Uh, episode. And it's just the most beautiful episode 10 of season one of Planet Earth. Like the single most inspired piece content I've ever watched. Shortly after that, I started my first company in the sustainability world. It was like in the um, environmental land use space. Did that for a while, did an electric vehicle company for a while. And I left the industry and worked at Stripe for a little bit at Fintech. Uh, mm-hmm. And Stripe wasn't for me. I hadn't talked about life, what I went wrong in a big company, but like wasn't, wasn't my seat. And as I was thinking about leaving Stripe, I basically said, I want to work in Fintech because it's really interesting and important. And support entrepreneurs I really love or in climate because it's all the things I really love. And those are the two industries also that like are booming and exploding on their own. And 
tons of career opportunities in those two industries. I talked about those two a little bit and I really moved towards climate because it's something I cared a little bit more about and like felt more personally. As I looked at the climate space, there are a few categories that you can really have an impact on in climate. You can work in material sciences, you can work in food, you can work in supply chain. Um, or I saw this, this was in 2021 or so, and there's this regulation starting to be discussed. There's this wave of carbon accounting startups coming out. And it just seemed like a really interesting challenge in industry to get into, to be able to work on that. So almost two years ago, I started working at a carbon accounting startup and we do exactly this kind of stuff. And the book was basically, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I was November 25th and looked at this because somebody asked me the other day. Uh, and I couldn't sleep. I just sent myself a Slack message saying like, there should be a book about all this stuff. And so the next day I just started writing it. And it was basically like, everybody in the world needs to do this. Whether or not you want to, this is not an emotional plea. Like you have like, you want big customers? You want to drive equity money? You want to go publicly? You want to work in Europe? You just have, if you're a big out company, you have to do this. Like it or not, you have to. It's super confusing. You don't know what to do. You don't know how much it's going to cost. You don't know how to budget for it. You don't know what good looks like or what bad looks like. And company like the one I work for, we cost tens of thousands of dollars, which for some is a good price, for some is a bad price, for some is a good price and they could do it for free for a year and they don't need us. Like there's a group of people who could start off and learning exactly what it is that they're going to need to do. Um, there's a growing group of people who work full-time in ESG and sustainability who are needed a, a resource and a path in and uh, students who want to get into it. Sustainability titles are some of the highest paid titles uh, in tech and in industry right now. And like, and I think it's like the biggest title that pays over seven figures and Fortune 500. I need a massive, massive need, career opportunity, business opportunity, all that stuff. And the goal of the book is to bring it all together and say like, look, if you're going to get started on this, this book should get you started. What you do next, you got some options. You could be go ho, you could be passive, you could whatever, but like, if you just need to know the state of play, this will probably be true for about two years and then it's going to be outdated. Uh, if you need to state of play, here's, here's where we're starting. What's the size of company where it starts to be like you have no other option? If you are about a year out from taking private equity money or beginning to file for an IPO, that's kind of where you begin to have no option. Before that, there's other reasons to do it. You might want to, but like that's where like you really have no option. Or if you are an enterprise, if your client is an enterprise, that you sell no Fortune 500, you also probably have, or to the government, you also probably have no option because both like massive enterprise companies, Fortune 500 or 1000, and the federal government require that their vendors report on their carbon emissions. So if you want to sell a Salesforce or to Microsoft, or if we do more than $7 million of business with the federal government, you have to do all this stuff. So that's if you're selling enterprise or federal, or if you are about a year out from private equity money, or IPO, that's when you really kind of, you have to do this within the next year or two. Let's speak more about kind of regardless, maybe some people are like, I don't care if this is a cluster of accuracy and accuracy. You got me excited when you said opportunity. What are, they're like, whether or not he's right, wrong, or it's going to take 50 years or 100 years or five years to actually figure this out in a way that makes sense and minimizes um unintended second order consequences of, let's say, like the increased information and, and all that stuff. I, I could do something here. It seems like it's a new thing that if you're just young and energetic and enthusiastic, there's stuff for you to do that could make a name for yourself. What are those opportunities that you see for kind of individuals, yeah. for businesses or for careers? Yes. Um, oh my goodness. I'll start with careers uh, and we can turn to businesses. Um, for careers, I think there's like two really, really important paths. Uh, the first is... Uh, working inside of a company, a larger company on their sustainability team. These are well-paying jobs. These are important jobs. I talked about Apple earlier, like the highlight of their annual event was their sustainability video that's been talked about a trillion times. That is all due to this large sustainability team. Like going inside of a company and helping them with their sustainability stuff, amazing career path. You could get a master's in this from a place like Columbia had an amazing program. Northwestern has made all these schools, Stanford, John Doerr, uh, the Kleiner Perkins investor or like Amazon and Google, just gave a gift of a couple billion dollars to Stanford to start a sustainability graduate school. Like this is a massive career opportunity to go work inside these companies, helping them figure out how they're going to 
deal with the transition to sustainability. The second career path, and we can dive into either one of these or talk about a business opportunity. The second career path is helping businesses reduce their emissions. So if you are more entrepreneurial, especially, um, you can work for a slew of startups that these massive companies are going to buy in order to help them become more sustainable. You can go work for material scientists, companies that found, you know, new ways to substitute plastic for some thing that made out of kelp or whatever. You can go work for carbon capture companies, um, who are like removing carbon out of the atmosphere, stopping them underground and getting paid by the world's biggest companies to do that. You can go work for, and there's tons of pure software companies that make code more efficient and storage more efficient that help these businesses save a bunch of money and a bunch of emissions. So if you're like earlier in your career, you have some wiggle room in what you do next. I would think about those two routes. If you're really good at the corporate life, incredible opportunities helping businesses figure out how they're going to deal with this stuff and go in-house. And if you're more like down startups and especially if you have hardware inclinations, but in software as well, um, working on helping them reduce their emissions are really the two massive opportunities. What qualifies you for uh, the second is, I guess, more obvious. It's like, do you have, would you be a good engineer or just like, do you have a skill set related to the thing that that company needs, right? Do they need a marketing person? Can you market? Yeah. Do they need an engineer? Can you engineer? It's like, that's like hiring. It's doing, do whatever you're good at, at those types of companies. Uh, the first is like, get this type of job. What qualifies a person for that type of job in your view? Sustainability is very, uh, it requires a lot of different skills. Um, to figure out how to do sustainability well, you need to be somebody who can communicate well. You need to be able to, to be somebody who can take risks to bring people together. There's this um, quote, I'm going to read it because I, I pulled it up really quickly, of a Corn Ferry, which is like one of the world's largest executive recruiting firms. They published this 30-page manifesto about a year ago around skills that a really good chief sustainability officer yeah. needs. Very relevant, right? Um, it's in the book, chapter seven. But uh, it says, uh, they, to take calculated risks, Using any opportunity, large or small, a combination of passion, risk, intolerance, and resilience is essential. Be the spider in the web. Know how to get traction in the highest levels. Shape, but don't deliver. DSOs are perceived as a chief translation officer. So applying complex ideas and communicating the correlation between risk, trust, growth, and cost. And then there's a little bit more. But I love the line of be the spider in the web. Know how to get traction in the highest levels. Shape, but don't deliver. What sustainability teams do really well is build resources for all the other teams to make sustainability their core job. So if you work at a company and you're on a sustainability team, it's not necessarily about all the stuff that you get done. It's about how you help everyone else get their job done. How do you build a tool set for your financing so that they can go out and do all the investor reporting, put their carbon emissions data in their 10Ks, uh, apply to CDP or do that stuff that investors want? How do you go to your supply chain team and help them think about, hey, how do I get my goods on a truck instead of on a plane because that lowers admission? How do I think through that? How do I go to my materials scientist team and say, how do we experiment through this stuff? How do I go to my marketing team and I help them talk about the stuff we're doing in sustainability without them guiding through it because they don't want to get slapped with uh, what's called greenwashing, which basically like means you're, you're making up claims you don't totally earn, which has huge legal consequences and fines. But you want to talk about your sustainability work because there's a big ROI opportunity in that marketing communication. So that be the spider of the web, shape, but don't deliver, I think is one of the most important things. And you don't need a skill set in any one of these. Yeah, I, you had West Town, the podcast, and her big thing, being spiky, right? That's, that's actually talked about. Like, you want to be the same thing, T-shaped or spiky or whatever you want. Like, really focus on one area, be an amazing communications professional, be a great supply chain expert, be really, really good at finance. But most importantly, you need to be able to influence all the other stakeholders because everyone at the company is going to have to figure out how to get the data, reduce your emissions, talk about it properly, uh, and everything else you're going to need to do. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm like thinking, you know, I don't have a ton of big corporate background, so I'm like, that's a not where I have. Uh, I'm like getting a bunch of people to agree on doing stuff that they're only half motivated to do. Is like you got to be really. That's a, it's a special skill set to uh, take on it's that challenge every day set. and stay motivated to, to do it. It's a special skill set and it takes a lot. I, mean, I, I was very open. I worked at Trike for like five or six months and it's just an important skill. Yeah, I was there. There were like 7,000 employees 
Um, and I joined El Gung Ho, started being, I was working on a startup yep. marketing team. I was like, oh, I'm not good at it. Like, I was just not good at it. Too many people need to do a degree. And they're all so smart and so capable. And like, you got to bring them all on board. And it takes a while. Like, it is super important that people like that are able to do that. But on the other side, like, and here, too small of a business, you just don't need somebody like that. So like, a startup does not need a full sustainability person. If you want to do this stuff, you outsource it. And you make it easy on yourself. Um, but the, the other opportunities of building the products that those massive companies are going to buy and implement to measure their emissions, to reduce their emissions, to talk about them well, that's more of a start to be hard to. In terms of your career and your framing, obviously, you're clearly passionate about just the underlying cause of like, what can you do as one person to advance sustainability as a global cause, right? And this makes sense in terms of like, well, if I help other people do that. In terms of like um, career outcomes, is there anything specifically motivated by or like the book motivates in terms of getting, do you think it positions you as a thought leader? And do you think it will lead to cool consulting? Like what's kind of the, or you just want like, wh- where's kind of your like strategic framing yeah. around putting the effort into this? Yeah, I'll be super transparent. So I have it over here. I, I joined Climate because I care about it a lot and it matters to me. Um, but also because it just seems like one of the best career opportunities of the next 50 years. Like so much money. Like you could even think the largest bill ever passed last year was a climate bill. There's a ton of money going into it. And that sounds amazing. For anyone ambitious and, and whatever, like sounds amazing. So I joined the climate industry. Um, I joined a company called Greek Places. I'm still there. It's great. You carve counter, so this is measure their emission. And I'm director of sale in there. So my job is finding new clients. Uh, lots of ways to find new clients, cold emails, conferences, whatever else. A book is one way, probably the way that takes a lot more work than anyone wants to do, but it is one way to come across the thought leader. So the effort of the book is to say, you know, besides that, I hope people read it and learn from it and do the stuff I care about. I hope they come across the book or it gives me a speaking opportunity I wouldn't have otherwise, or there's no reason for you to have me on the podcast unless I have a book. Somebody gets the book. Buy it, rent it, borrows it from a friend, whatever. The money on the book is really minimal. I'm probably going to average about $4 of profit for a book. So if it's a super successful book, like super successful book, it sells 10,000 copies, which is what a really successful self-published book is. Like maybe that's 40 grand. Probably won't be anywhere near that. So that's the high end. So obviously the money is on that side. What I do hope happens is could be behind the book. They call me. They say, how can I approach this? Not everyone's going to be a good client for us. Lots mm-hmm. of companies will be too small, too big, wrong industry, whatever. A certain number of companies will be. And so my hope is that this brings in X amount more revenue into the company I work for. I'm in sales. I get X percentage of that. Great. The ROI is there. The other side of that is I'll be able to go speak at conferences and hopefully get some other speaking opportunities, some of which are paid. So some of these conferences, especially as you get better, if you want to see a support topic, you can make between you know, one and $15,000 per conference. So cool. Maybe, you know, you got a couple of those and that comes out. But then also longer term, as I think about my career in climate, it was really fun challenge to be able to conduct these interviews. I don't know. I I interviewed like 80 people for the book to conduct these interviews, to read these ESG report, to figure out the state of play. And as I continue to start companies or join sales teams of startups or just all over do. Uh, it's fun to be able to say, hey, I at this particular moment in time, no, you know, more than 99.9% of people. There's always people who know more of like, I have a really good understanding of this. That knowledge will aspire in a couple of years. And that knowledge doesn't focus in certain industries. Like I know restaurants pretty well, but maybe I need a, a version of the book just for restaurants. I know software companies pretty well, but maybe a version of this book just for song companies would be really good. So like I can continue to build on that. And whether I turn that into a career sales or I turn that into a career uh, as a startup founder again, and I go, hey, I'm the guy who wrote the book and that whenever, like, I think there's lots of ways in which it'll help. Some of it being a little bit of the short-term financial, a lot of it being brand and opportunity and draw and connections. And I got to speak to people who I never would have, you know, when you and I first met three years ago or something, and you were just getting started on the podcast. I told you I started a podcast as well many years ago. And I only did it because nobody wanted to talk to me just to talk mm-hmm. to me. But everybody wanted to be on my podcast. And it was awesome and so true and such a cheat code. And the book is the same thing. But a lot of hours put into it. But like, nobody wanted to talk to me just to talk to me. 
if you write down and talk to an author of a book, if it's a decent, relevant book. Relevant, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think podcasting is low enough effort in terms of getting started where it's worth it just to do it to talk to people. Probably not writing a book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like writing a book, like, all right. So November 25th, I had the idea. Uh, I basically started writing an hour a day minimum all all the way through. And maybe I missed 10 days between November 25th and June 1st, maybe. Um, some days I weren't running more than an hour a day. Um, I didn't even like tell anyone about it for at least three or four months. I just, I wanted to like get to whatever it was, 10,000 or 20,000 words. Um, that like seemed legit and I, or like, it's, it's a lot of stuff. So before you actually start doing it, um, you gotta be pretty committed to it because just there's so many drop off points. Or the podcast thing, like you record three podcasts and you stop and that's okay. You can stop and you go to three episode show where you can keep going. Uh, with a book like zero, zero to one. And even when you release it, even when you finally hit one, you're actually really only at like 0.6. I thought I wrote a book, you're done. Like now I got, and I want to, I like it. It's part of the reason you do, but like, you got to do the podcast. You got to do the conferences. Like you got to, you don't even get to like copy paste your chapters and put them on articles. You need to write totally new articles, uh, for other people to be featured in there, whatever. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Sounds fun overall in terms of, uh, if the framing is clear enough, right? It's, it's worthwhile. So doing a lot of authors kind of back to back past couple of weeks. So it's yeah. fun seeing a lot yeah. of, getting a lot of book breaks. What'd you learn? What's like, uh, what, what's the common thread about the authors? I mean, I've interviewed, I don't even know how many authors I, I could probably come up with it. I'd say more than 30 authors, not in the past couple of weeks, just, just collectively, right? I have a bookshelf somewhere. I'm going to point, I don't even know which I'm disoriented. I'm going to say it that way. I think I live that way from here. Um, but that many authors have a bookshelf, right? And I just have the bookshelf divided between like authors I've interviewed and authors I haven't. Cool. Which is fun. And I haven't purchased every single book from every person I've ever interviewed. I've done most. A lot of them, it's been like retroactive. So it's like I interviewed them. And then, so let's say we didn't do this part two interview. We, you just published the book and you didn't reach out and I didn't know about it and whatever didn't happen. It's like, would I 100% go buy the book? Because then I'm like, well, I interviewed him three years ago before this book was even in his brain. So like now I can just grow it. I'm not just trying to grow that part of the bookshelf for the sake of it. Now it's just fun. It's just tro- trophy cell. Exactly. And, and it's nice because it like stacks up, right? Like the podcast is digital. So it's like, you know, scrolling. So it's like, oh, look at this list of episodes becoming longer to scroll through. Versus like, look at this stack of books becoming heavier. Then I can move apartment to apartment. Yeah, that's that's like the dream. That's exactly. Let me just make this thing harder for myself every time I move. (laughs) Uh, I actually haven't even unpacked the books and I've lived in this apartment for two weeks. They're just, that's unrelated. So yeah, that's a separate issue. The the answer to the question, one answer to the question, and it's not necessarily something that, you know, sometimes there's value in hearing the same answer over and over again, because it just convinces your ego to stop overcomplicating things and stop looking for a complicated answer. But it's just like you can't be you can't have a bad reason to write a book. It's just I mean, it's it's kind of just with everything, right? It's like you have to have a it's a difficult thing to do, even if you try to do a small book or a simple book. And if your why isn't clear, if you're not super motivated for it, then it's just not going to come through. And it's kind of like, I think a lot of things, there's a word I really like undeniable. And then it's kind of like, and I think a very parallel sentence to that is only do X if it makes less sense not to do X. Like it only makes sense to write the book if it actually makes more sense to write the book than not to write. Like not writing the book doesn't make sense. It's like with your positioning, with your career path, with your career ambitions, with the fact that you did a lot of research and this book just doesn't exist right now. Like it just doesn't make sense now. Like with all the information and all the context, it really doesn't make sense for you to not write this book. Like a, a parallel for that, I think in terms of software, I think a lot of people try to build really big software companies and platforms. So you've probably seen this for however much older uh, than me you are, years longer than I have seen this. But decades, decades. A lot of people try to build a platform for no reason. They're like, we're going to build a platform that does X. And there's no, because they just want to build a big software company versus like, no, like the only reason I think to build a platform is because you've built some, solve a problem for some group of people that is super, 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 super validated a million times over. And then it might make sense to generalize what you've built to apply like generally. But it's like started yeah. Like valid. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of the same thing. I don't know if you've got the same diseases I do, but I just like start doing things once I they come to my head way too quickly. And it's like in some ways, the good thing is I have friends who talked about doing things for years and mm-hmm. years and never get to it. And I got them out to problem where I'm like just shooting the shit with a friend. And we're like, boom, that's an idea. And I go home and like I build the website just to mess around with it. 
pros and cons to that, certainly. Um, but I made a mistake where like I had a previous startup where like I really shouldn't have started or I should have like done it differently, been a little slower, been whatever, done all the, I thought about how do we make this a billion dollar company before I thought about how do we make this billion dollar company. So I made that mistake in the past. With this book, I did exactly what you said. I wrote, before I wrote even a thing about the book, I wrote, here's my goals. Like this is the success if, I don't remember what they were exactly. There were three of them. It was, I want to be able to um, uh, make X amount of revenue for green places. I want to be able to get X number of speaking gigs at a conference. And I think it'll sell Y number of books. I think that was my third, my third goal. Like, that's what this looks like. And if I can't do that, like, if I don't think I can get X number of revenue, like, I don't know. I don't think it's worth my time just for some brand building, whatever. But if I do think with the better 70% certainty that these can come true, then it's worth my time. And everything I did was about like that. There's also a thing that I like, um, the guy Sam Plore, who started yep. a, 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 a newsletter called The Hustle, which he sold to HubSpot, and now he has a podcast. And he got this thing where he talked about starting The Hustle. He was like, yeah, I, th- I thought it was like 2000, I don't know, 13 or 14. Yeah, I thought a newsletter could be a cool thing to do. I thought it'd be a good business. What I wanted to think about was, can I just sit down and write a newsletter every single day? Before I really committed to it, I was like, you know, like, let me write a newsletter every single day. And so we did that for like 30 days. He wrote a newsletter for some of his friends. And then 30 days later, I was like, yeah, I think I could continue to write a newsletter every single day. Let me turn that into a business. And basically did the same thing with this book. I do this thing all the time where I'm like, idea, I'm going to go start a business. Awesome. Like, and I don't want to do that again. I'd be like, yep. idea, I'm going to go write a book. I'm telling everyone, like, I still want to do that. And so every day I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I thought I'm not going to tell anyone I saw my 10,000 words. And I got 10,000 words and I went, all right, yeah. And I keep doing it for another 90 days or whatever it's going to take to get to, to 60,000. And the answer was yes. And I kept on doing it. But I was super clear about my goals. And I was super clear about my process. Like I had a, I forgot the name of it, it's Momentum, maybe. I got with a Google extension that counted up my words. Oh, I nice. said this how many days in a row you wrote. And I had to write every single day. Even if it was just like two words at midnight because I had a crazy day, I sat down and I wrote those two words and I went to bed. But like, and I could not break that street. And it was, I don't know, mostly sucked. Like mostly my wife wanted to go hang out. And I was like, I haven't written yet today. Can go hang out. I got to do this thing. Mostly it was, it was no good and I hope the payoff comes soon, but, but besides the, you, know, you learned it, self-improved and all, all the good stuff we're also excited to do. I think we'd be doing the people a disservice by making it sound like it was easier than it was to make it happen. I tell friends, I've started, I've started on a five or six company like, and I tell friends who ask about it. I'm like, no, it all sucks. Like it's all, it's all, all like you have to be addicted and like an absolute fool to do this because it sucks. Like. You know what doesn't suck is getting a paycheck that's really, really big and then going to happy hours with your office and then getting paid to fly to some sick conference in uh, San Francisco. That doesn't suck. We should go do that. You know what does suck? Starting companies sucks. And writing books sucks. If you're addicted or you're insane or you really think that there's enough value in it, then and only then should you do it. But you shouldn't do it because, oh, it's going to be such a great ride and... um the road for the daily, no, it all, it all sucks. And you got to be honest about that. And if you are honest that it will suck, then you are fine. Like I'm, I'm doing 75 hard now. I know 75 hard. So I'm on day like 25 or something. So 75 days, workout twice a day. One has to be outside, take your die, drink down the water, read 10 pages a day. And maybe I'm missing something. It sucks. And don't drink alcohol. Because it's not, I'm not doing it every day is a pleasure. I'm doing it like, you gotta, whatever. If you do this every day, Something will come out the other end. You got to be very honest with the, the, the end goal and make it work. Yeah. I wonder if I was in the middle of a, so I did 75 hard for the first time in from like April to June or April to July of 2020. So a long time ago. So, and then I did phase one throughout in phase two and phase three in that calendar. Year. Oh, you have gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was probably in the middle of one of them around the time that we did our podcast. Cause we were something somewhere between like September on November of 2020. Something like that. Yeah. And so I probably did phase one in that fall semester. So just, yeah. What are, what are the phases again? I, I don't think I'm going to do them because I don't feel like it. <laughs> what are the phases of them? 
Phase one is 75 hard plus cold shower, a five minute cold shower. So like five minutes of cold water. So if you're going to get yeah. in the shower and warm first and turn it to cold, it's like, don't start the timer until the water's cold. Yeah. And I was like, I don't take five minutes to shower, but I guess I'm going to learn how to take longer, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then because you don't change anything, right? That's an important thing. You don't change anything. And then you do the power list, which is basically writing out your key items and doing them for the day. And so obviously you want to write those out in such a way that like you're able to complete them because like if something goes wrong, it needs to be like effort based, not like finish this. And then it's like a math. I was in school at the time, right? So it's like finish this problem. And then you like work on it for four hours and you don't figure it out. It's like you don't want to have to reset the challenge because you just couldn't figure out the computer algorithm in four hours that day. It just took two days to figure out. So it's like put at least a good hour into this or figure it out, right? So you kind of give like those those conditions so that you don't set yourself up for failure but also so you don't set yourself up for for cheating and keeping it too easy. And then 10 minutes of visualization. So just like closing your eyes and just thinking about whatever it is you want to kind of visualize, manifest, whatever the word you want to imagine uh, that you want to assign to that. And then also the core 75 hard activities. Did you, uh, after all that, after you know nine months or a year or whatever of, of doing that activity? And that's with phases that. on and off, right? It's like... Oh, that's not on. Was there, was there a clear before and after for you? Was there a clear like, this this was me a year ago and this is me today, either physically or mentally or like that. Well, I'm saying so it's only the phases one, two, and three are only 30 days each. So it's only 165 oh. days. Easy. It's only 165 days out of the year, out of the 365 that you're doing a 75 hard type thing. So sorry, there's 75 hard again in the sense of the same six daily habits of 75 hard, but only for 30 day intervals. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Well, did, you, did you have, were you like, a, I am a new man, I'm, 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 I've been reborn after this 165 days. I gained a lot from it, for sure. I gained a lot from it. I think if what's difficult is when you change too much all at once, it's it's really interesting because I'd graduated. So it kind of finished phase four or phase three, which is the final step, maybe like end of April or beginning of April. And then so then I had a month more school and I graduated and then I moved and, and all sorts of stuff. So just kind of like, I think if I had stayed in the same place, I would have carried that momentum a little more than just like road trip. I went back to my parents' house initially before starting a job or anything. So then like kind of living at home, kind of being more of a vacation mode, specifically living in Las Vegas of all places. So I think that had I kind of stayed in the same life routine, obviously there's a ton I learned from it that I still carry with me to this day of just like, you know, if you're going to buy into a program, you have to buy in. And if you change anything, it's not going to work for you nearly as well as if you don't change anything. The importance of a daily streak versus a three times a week streak. There's just like clear yes, no criteria, clear success criteria. It's like, if I do this, I can feel good about today. And if I don't do all this, I can like, you don't want to work really hard all day and put in your best and still feel like a lazy position at the end of the day, because you want to feel like you're winning. You want to feel like you're making progress. You want to feel like there's momentum. And so you kind of have to still apply a lot of those same types of thinking to the beginning of your day. I think the only thing is that as a naturally, I think this is maybe I should interrogate this and, and call it an excuse or whatever it is. I found that as a naturally skinny person, 90 minutes of exercise was really hard to overeat to compensate for, to not just get even skinnier. But also, I don't think that, you know, I could just stretch, right? I, I considered stretching part of the challenge. And I think stretching is healthy and, and constructive and actually difficult if you are stretching in the right way. You're not just sitting there and like playing pretend and, and LARPing that you're stretching. But like if you're actually like mentally engaged in the stretch, then that's really constructive and walking is fine and swimming is fine. And I think even ping pong is fine. So it's like, you just have to add enough variety where you don't get like repetitive use injuries and also burn too many calories. But I'm a huge fan of the whole Andy Frisella complex. Yeah. I like when people do the thinking for me. It's kind of what you were saying about like, yes, clear, yes, no, like you can't back out of it. I like that thing. Um, it's just, you know, here's a thing that tens of thousands of people have done and everyone's into it. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, you mean, I don't need to think about Will I eat this or will I eat that? Or because yep. when I told you my daughter slept terribly, my wife went to like a yoga class in the morning. I finally put her down and I was so tired. I was like, oh, I, was like I don't ride this Peloton right now. I just don't think I'm going to be able to get my two workouts done today. But I like drag myself asleep onto the Peloton. No, nice. Like no one, I didn't have to think about should I or should I not? Or just like, yeah, I got I got to do it. Exactly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an ant that way. I'll just, I'll follow the queen and. Do whatever I'm told, and it, 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 it makes life easy. Strict rule. It's like a, it's a Jocko willing, like this is letting people speed on thing. Yep. Like 
if you are disciplined and you just do, if you write every day in your book and you send your 10 outbound sales emails, if you just eat what you said you're going to eat, not other things, then you have the freedom to whatever it is. You, you hope for the end result to be, um, but I'm not, I'm not always good at it, but when I'm, when I'm not, I try to be honest. Yeah, a big thing that we talked about the first time was was kind of like being an Ironman triathlete, which is something that you've done. I don't know if you've done that more than once or not. Uh, it's interesting because it's like there's no way if this wasn't something that was a thing that other people thought of that you're like, oh, I could go do that thing. There's no way ever in any reason in your life you'd ever just wake up one day and say, I'm going to swim X miles, run a full marathon and bike X miles and do all that today. Like it's just because it's a thing that someone else thought about and you're like, whatever, I can do that. But you never come up like with that and you never try like to work that hard. Like, I just like to collect badges. Like, I, yeah. It's be, it's good. What else yeah, are you going to do? Like, well, yeah, I, I wanted like, what's the challenge? Like, my last week, my friend and I did a murder. Like, the, the run a mile, yep. 200 pull, 200 push ups, and 300 squats, and the run another mile. It's not because I thought of it. It was just like, oh, I've never done that. Like, yeah, let's, let's get some murder badge. And then go to the next. Yep. That's what the best workouts are. You come up with badge. something stupid. Go to the, yeah. Yeah. Like, let's. Right after, immediately after this, I'm going to go to bar and I'm going to do my outdoor workout and I'm going to do 45 minutes. That's the outdoor workout night. I'm going to do every minute on the minute, five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 squats, and then a minute rest. And for 45 that's, minutes? That's for 45 minutes, yeah. Oh, with a minute rest. Okay. With a minute rest, yeah. I'm probably going to do my first sprint triathlon. I've never done any triathlon, but in like eight weeks because I moved into a place that has a really big pool and it's on some biking trails and I've been biking to work. So I'm like, all right, I'm biking. And now I can, there's no guarantee I'm ever going to live in a place that has a proper training pool at the complex. The pool's clutch. Yeah. So I'm like, that's, that's the fun. most inconvenient thing of triathlon training. It's like having a commute yeah. to a pool. Well, I joined the YMCA because it had a pool, but so did all of Brooklyn. So the pool's always crowded and you're swimming like four or five to a lane. So now I don't even swim anymore because it's just, it's just crowded. Uh, so yeah, now take advantage of your situation. Exactly. Just the convenience. So anyway... Um, it's fun to talk about fitness and challenges. What's the, yeah. so pr- promoting the book, doing set, finishing 75 hard, getting your Murph improved. I was going to say, hey, maybe I feel silly now with all that build up. Is there another challenge that's kind of on the roadmap or it's taking the book to the finish line and see it, not the finish line and, the, and then see what's next. Fatherhood's been a big guy. Big <laughs> that's, that's a good one. <laughs> I did it. I, I, I'm obligated to mention that one. No, it's there. I'm, I'm not that, that one's got like a, a proper duration commitment as that's- well. Episode three, for <laughs> eighteen years, I ran eighteen years of getting that badge. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm pumped about the book, man. It was, like was really hard. It took a full year. Uh, to, I start, started whatever uh, ten months ago. It'll be out basically at the almost at the twelve month mark. Um, this is fine. Like I like doing this stuff. Um, the carbon accounting thing, you can nerd out about it. Kind of like we went a nerdier route today. Like it's good, yeah. it's bad. How do you measure stuff? How do you compare this stuff? Last week I did a thing. That was I do analytics, like, so you know I'm like I'm like this. No, it's cool. I'm like let's get into it. You could talk about the regulatory side of it. You could talk about the marketing side of it. You could talk about the and playing. Yeah, like you did a million things to talk about. I'm excited to talk about all those things. I think it'll be fun to get the, you know, as any egotistical young man, I like to go hear the sound of my own voice. Give my opportunity to do that in spades, and hopefully it's you know spewing interesting and valuable content. But we'll, we'll find out in a couple of months and they don't ever like think back. Uh, and it's cool. I'm excited to do this thing and like write the articles, promote the thing, do the conferences, um, uh, book website and that attainable sustainability book.com. Uh, I just got in, like some cool blurbs. The founder of Netflix gave a blurb. Which I'm really That's pretty cool. proud of. Which one? Yeah. So, I, uh, Mark Randolph, he was the okay. CEO. Um, I think he took it public or maybe he left right before it went public, something like that. Are there two? Because there's Reed Hastings. Is the, I don't know which one's which, right? Yeah, it's Reed, and, and Reed Hastings was the CEO now, and Mark okay. Randolph was the, was the first. Are the one by a solid testimony, though? First investor, yeah. Both of these things. Reed Hastings invested into Mark. Mark started it, spent like five or seven years or something around it, and then Reed took it over. Uh, but yeah, like I was, all, um, I'm just excited about it. And I hope, I hope people, uh, I hope anybody in, who either are facing the career path and sustainability, you know, like I'm young, this is a cool career. What can I learn about it? Or you're like an executive or an investor who's like, I'm figuring this stuff out. What's the regulations? Who's going to sue me if I get this wrong? Like, how do I make this profitable for my business? Um, those are really the, the two groups. If you're like a student of the business or if you're running the business and you're like, how do I get this right? 
I hope I hope it's uh, valuable. You know, your pitch can be if you're either of those people, it makes less sense not to read the book. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. If it doesn't make sense to do X, don't don't do X. My book. Exactly. So there we go. Well, Adriel, thanks for uh, coming back on the show. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for condensing a really confusing, big, hairy problem and making people much further along in the process of understanding it in the span of one to two hours instead of hundreds of hours of research. And there you go. Uh, attainablesustainability.com attainablesustainabilitybook.com yeah attainable sustainability was was, uh, too expensive fair enough maybe on the second edition we'll we'll upgrade well you can get a speaking gig buy the domain yeah 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 Yeah, there's a a way to do it yeah Yeah. Yeah. Lewis and Kyle Jones good to be back thank you man amazing